Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listening to the Marty Leeds Math Magical Radio Hour, where we discuss myth, math, spirituality, philosophy, and much, much more. www.thesyncbook.com. Hello listeners, welcome one and all. Marty here, and I am back in the saddle for another round of Math Magic. Glad you could join me. A few announcements here before we jump into the interview this evening. I was recently a guest on a few podcasts that are available now for download. Uh, This last Sunday, I did the Richard Serrett Show called The Conspiracy Show, and that is found on iTunes as well as on uh, richardserrett.com with Serrett spelled S-Y-R-E-T-T. Uh, It was an hour conversation, and I tried to cram in as much info as possible, so check that out if you were feeling saucy and sassy. Um, I was also a guest on the SyncBook Radio Zone 42 Minutes with Douglas Bowles, and our conversation was centered around Manly Palmer Hall's The Secret Teachings of All Ages, a fantastic compendium of esoteric knowledge, and we, we ended up focusing on Pythagoras and his life and work. Check those shows out if you get a chance. Um, I also want to let everyone know that I'm not sure if I will have a podcast next week. This next weekend is my birthday weekend, um, and I'm I'm getting a little long in the tooth, as as a fellow tends to say. And I'm looking at being out of town, so I won't be able to prep for the show. But fret not, lots of great guests are on the roster, so keep your dial tuned to the SyncBook Radio. Thanks to everyone who uh, signed up for the beta testing on the SyncBook site. My uh, my deepest appreciation. Please don't forget to throw a donation our way if you can afford it. Um, our IT guy behind the scenes, Guillaume, as well as, as well as Alan Abadessa Green, they've been hard at work at reworking the site to make it more efficient and user friendly and the like. And uh, so, any spare change you can throw our way is certainly appreciated. Alrighty, folks, let's do this. Our guest tonight is author of the Giza Template, Edward Nightingale, and the musical guest is the singer songwriter Michael Conley. This show is brought to you by the SyncBook Radio. Check out all the wonderful podcasts. 42 Minutes, Always Record, Astro Music, Pentimental, and Synchronize. More information about SyncBook Press, SyncBook Radio, and SyncBook events can be found at www.thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website, and please consider setting up a monthly charge as it helps us keep the lights on and helps keep our microphones humming. And as always, thank you for your support. 
Our guest tonight is Edward Nightingale. Edward Nightingale is a master woodworker, musician, author, and researcher who has been researching the pyramids and Great Sphinx of Giza since 1997. Edward has presented his research at the Conference on Procession and Ancient Knowledge, and he recently spoke at the 2014 Paradigm Symposium. His book, The Giza Template, Temple Grawl, Earth Measure reveals that Giza was designed as a repository, encoding high scientific knowledge while tracking the trajectory of the solar system, mapping out the processional ages. He takes the reader step by step, precisely recreating the Giza complex in its entirety, challenging academia and skeptics to recreate the template at Giza for themselves. Emphasizing that his research is not theoretical, he presents a geometric, mathematical model of Giza that is a real game changer. In the words of John Anthony West, the Giza template is the architecture textual Rosetta Stone. So without further ado, let's get pious with Edward Nightingale. Mr. Nightingale, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, making the time this evening to speak with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I already appreciate you having me on. So yeah, it's it's pretty auspicious that you ended up being the, the guest for the 22nd episode of this show with, um, you know, the, the number 22 is a number steeped within number philosophy and symbolism, 22 cards of the tarot deck, of course, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and least we not forget, 22 divided by 7 produces one of the most often used approximations of pi, and we can actually find this approximation of pi in the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is something that um, you you cover in your book. So um, we, we got a lot to discuss here, and there's, you know, and really any aspect of this work could take us down a, a path which would lead to, you know, a hundred other paths. So, and I think the hardest thing about discussing these subjects, you know, over the air, the subjects like sacred geometry, metrology, mathematics, is the infinite places and directions we can take the work. But, you know, we'll we'll try to stay on course here and do the best we can. So I know that that's, that's can sometimes be difficult. So That sounds good. Um, so I got wind of your work through uh, Laird Scranton. Yes. Um, whose work I've I've admired for quite some time now, and Laird contributed some perspectives for y- this this book as well. How did you end up meeting him and collaborating with him and that sort of thing? Well, I met Laird through uh, John Anthony West. I was friends with John since '97 uh, when I went over to Egypt with him, and I met uh, Laird through John. Okay, um, what? What was that experience like with 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 John? Did you spend a week because he does like week tours, doesn't he? Yeah, I think it was two weeks we went over, and it it, it was life changing, really. I mean, this is what really propelled me, uh, you know, on this whole path here is is that trip with him. How long, like, how long have you been investigating stuff before you went over there? Where I mean, did, was this a, a a core interest for you, like Egyptology and and the mysteries of the the pyramids and this sort of thing, or? Well, I had been interested, you know, pretty early in my youth, uh, probably around the time of uh, um, the Chariots of the Gods with Eric Van Doniken. I started getting interested in that type of thing, and you know, the pyramids always intrigued me just from the uh, a building aspect. You know, as an architect, woodworker, designer, I can kind of relate to shapes, and they always really intrigued me. And I had an idea before I went with John, um, that it was a complex, designed as a complex, and I had an idea of where that center might be. If they were laying out a complex, you would have to start with one point and take all measure from that point. And when I went there, I actually found what I thought was the point, and uh, 18 years or so later, I found, you know, that was in fact the case. 
So you've been working on this for 18 years, huh? Yeah, yeah. Like this particular aspect of, of the Giza Plateau, huh? Yeah, so I was trying to you know, figure out what the designers were doing there, why they built this. And I had an idea, and it was certainly not an original idea, that it was built as a repository and that they were using the geometry to you know, encode information or knowledge. And uh, that's why there are really no hieroglyphs or any kind of... Uh, markings or carvings on the plateau mm -hmm. so essentially like what what you've what you put forward in in the book is is a reconstruction or it's a reverse engineering as you said of the giza template and you you've laid out some parameters for like construction constructing the template itself like certain things that you kind of uh, anchor to can you discuss these a little bit so the listeners can get an understanding of the the sort of methodology or you know logic you use to place the whole thing together Okay, well, like you said, I did start by reverse engineering it, and that's simply measuring what is existing, going in and trying to accurately measure what was built and seeing if there was some kind of a unified uh, plan um, where there, uh, did the numbers make sense why they placed these structures where they placed them. And after, uh, when, I, when I went over there and I found what I thought to be the center point of the pyramid complex, which is at the, the the beginning of the Sphinx Causeway that runs on a slight angle. It's it's about uh, 350 so feet or so in front of the pyramid of Kephra, the center pyramid. Um, that I had in my mind's eye was the center of the circle. So I started using circles and putting a compass at that point. And uh, eventually, I realized that the the circle was had a diameter of nine units that were the base length of the center pyramid. And uh, from that, it kind of uh, developed from there. I realized that the uh, a lot of ancient cultures used a circle with a diameter of nine um, to. They used a square of eight of those units to uh, calculate the area of a circle. And it's a very simple uh, formula. And it was from that that I realized that that's what they had used for the template or the, the survey plat for the, for the complex. And once I had that figured in, um, you know, things started to fall into place. Okay, I, I, I want to get into the, the eight and nine and the circle and the square here uh, just a little bit, but what, what drew you to find that, that particular point as the center of the circle? Well, to me, it just looked like a balanced point uh, within the center, and again, it was at the, the, the end of the causeway that runs from the front of Kafra uh, east. Uh, it's on about a 13-and-a-half-degree angle uh, off due east and it runs down to the Sphinx and that to me kind of looked like the hand of a clock. Now I know there's other causeways uh, with the other pyramids as well but but that center one just seemed to me to be uh, like the hand of a clock and ironically that's exactly what it turned out to be. Uh, so when you when you were traveling with John did you do any surveying at all yourself there or were you just getting like a general sense overview of the complex? Right, I was just getting a general general overview of the complex. I I went there, like I said, with with my mind focused on at one point, and when I went to that point, um, I found 
there was a hole, uh, about a three inch or so hole bored right in the bedrock that, that seemed to me to be approximately this, the point I was looking for. Now, whether that is precisely it now, I couldn't really tell you. I'd have to go back over and, uh, survey or look at that point again, but I'd like to get back over there and do that because I think that was the point. And I did record, I had a video recorder with me and I actually recorded where I thought that point was back then. And uh, But the problem I had run into was I was working off of survey maps, um, surveys from William Flinders Petrie and uh, uh, Cole, another survey that was done there and the measurements that they had didn't quite jive with what I was finding in a, a logical mathematical model if, if you want to put it that way uh, and it wasn't really until I purchased a, a quick bird satellite uh, view of Giza that I was able to really figure out what was going on and this, this you say in the book that this satellite image that you that you purchased actually is is pretty damn accurate, correct? Yes, correct. And I and I have in the book there I have the quotes from uh, the people at Satellite Imaging as well as another expert in the field. And I've worked uh, with some local surveyors and and ran it past them, and uh, they all agree that uh, you know the the accuracy is there. And, and therein lies the problem because there was such a large discrepancy between the Petrie survey and the satellite image, uh, you know, I've concluded uh, that the Petrie data that was given uh, was given um, not correctly, if you want to put it kindly. Mm -hmm. and, and the reasons that, and the reasons that I uh, give for, for that is that they are, we're trying to uh, keep some of this information from the general public because with those measurements that they were the discrepancies were that kept the puzzle from being put together properly you know uh, you're just bring, you're bringing up a good point i don't necessarily want to go down this road too much but it seems like there, there's an overarching theme with modern egyptology that a lot of this the true information surrounding Egypt's past surveys, like you said, things like that, seem to be hidden or abused, that sort of thing. Why? Why do you see that is? I mean, would you agree with that? And if so, why would you? You know, why is that? Well, I definitely agree with that. And after a lot of research, I've you know come to the conclusions that the reason it was hidden is because there's 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 knowledge hidden there, encoded there, that was put there, and there's people that don't want that to be generally known in the public okay. plain and simple yeah so let's okay let, let's talk about how modern egyptology actually like perceives this entire complex or structure i mean it, it it's not incorrect to say that basically you know as we were saying there's a general theme running through modern archaeology that the giza monuments that there is really no cohesive design or underpinning the you know underpinning the entire complex right i mean it, it's it, there's the kind of the idea that this was kind of just thrown together over several years by megalomaniacal pharaohs kind of idea right yes and that was really insulting my intelligence to be honest with you <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean 
so you see ultimately you see the, this entire complex as as a design as as if these were blueprints that were passed on you know through many generations or whatever it, through many different pharaohs coordinating this sort of massive undertaking right this enormous building project absolutely absolutely correct okay so what ultimately it, the 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 question that i always run into or people will ask me when i you know talk about a lot of this stuff is that you know guys like yourself you know some of the work that like Scott Onstott has done of course what Randall Carlson's done these guys when we look at this and we can extract all this mathematics and we can extract the geometry as you're doing a lot of the a lot of the times the question comes up like well, so what you know so what if they encoded all of this stuff what what does it mean i mean have you has anybody ever asked you that and like what's your take on that yes yeah i've been asked that quite a bit and and honestly the these this next book that's coming out will really be the clincher for all this, the the first book uh, is is if if you want to call it that would be your Batman decoder ring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would give you all the information that you would need. Uh, Earth measure the whole measuring systems there, um, encoded and done beautifully. And in order to uh, get into the the stellar alignments and the celestial alignments with the Sphinx. I had to set this up with this first book that really lays out the groundwork. And it's from that point, once, once you get through this first book, that uh, the next book will develop from the view from the Sphinx, uh, essentially recording the sky and the movements of the stars and the asterisms, all the asterisms that are there in Western uh asterisms or constellations, they all were not just put there willy-nilly. They're, they're geometrically positioned within the coordinates at very specific times. And what I've discovered is uh, how they uh, use this to put together the calendar systems and, and by calendar systems, I mean I'm talking about the Hebrew calendar, I'm talking about the Gregorian calendar, and the Mayan calendar. They all perfectly uh, can be reconciled from one date, and that date was the 2012 uh, date, December 21st, 2012. And that was the galactic alignment, which is, you know, the largest alignment that that you could really line something up with and it's completely logical that they they use these uh this that day is a as an end of the calendar at, at an end and a new beginning of this of this new cycle yeah you know i had uh, john major jenkins on and we were talking about this because of his i mean astounding work that he did with reconstructing the mayan cosmology and that sort of thing and the thing that I always said was that 2012 was something important. There was something important about that whole date. And it wasn't just media hype and hoopla and that sort of thing. And so with, with what the, what you're doing is kind of merging all of these different, all these different cultures and saying that, yes, they're all pointing to this position, yes. this, this alignment. What's, what is so important about this alignment besides the fact that it's, it only occurs every whatever, how many years? Yeah. Well, the, the alignment, I guess is, uh, well, what's recorded in the calendar, this last calendar, is one-fifth of the cycle of a 25,920-year cycle of the, the procession. Uh, 
um, the beginning date of 3114 BC with the Mayan calendar um, is recording the 5,127 years of this cycle, uh, which is the fifth of this age. Now, if you look, there's there's uh, a climate changes or whatever you want to call it uh, that are dated to that time about 5,200 years ago. Um, so we can see during this cycle in, in uh, a procession that there are times where there are changes, uh, you know, catastrophic or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think that that's exactly what they were pointing to, uh, recording the cycle of the procession. So basically, this is, as you were saying earlier, it's a repository of knowledge. One of those one of those pieces of knowledge being that these are grand markers for cycles of catastrophe as well as cycles of birth and renewal, right? Yes, yes. And, and I want to emphasize that, too. You know, this doesn't all have to be a bad thing because, in fact, I haven't actually found anything that says something bad is going to happen. But then again, when you look at these dates, as we look back, like with the work of Randall Carlson, I mean, uh, he, he, these dates usually have associated with them some kind of uh, climate change or, uh, to put it mildly, I guess, uh, maybe catastrophic changes, whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, can we get, can we go, can we step back here a little bit and discuss the numbers eight and nine? And can we talk about the, the circle and square a little bit? Can you flesh some of this idea out for the listeners? Sure. Um, the, uh, the eight and the nine is relevant because if you take uh, a, a circle with a diameter of nine units and you want to approximate the area, if you take eight of those units and make a square, that um, area of that eight by eight square is approximates the area of a circle with a nine unit diameter. And ancient cultures use this to lay out their uh, their their towns or so that's that's the basics of that now what i did and what i discovered after that point i found that uh i asked myself well big deal they got a circle and a square here in this in this uh template now when i put that circle and square over and overlaid it with uh, Giza, I realized that there were very uh, significant points of alignment within the, that square, that eight by eight square. So I said, okay, well, what are they showing me here? A big deal, uh, uh, eight by eight square in a circle. So what? So I, I figured, well, there must be an, another step to this. So the next step would be to add numbers to that grid and make a coordinate system out of it and that would be a way of uh, you know putting numbers and coordinates in a coordinate system which is the basis of analytical geometry and uh, when I did that I, I looked through history and as a musician I was aware of uh, the Pythagorean theorem and uh, I had read one one time when I was looking in into this about uh, uh, Plato giving 
his description of how God had created the universe by using two sets of numbers, a doubling sequence and a tripling sequence. And he went on to explain how he did this. And I used those numbers and applied them to the eight by eight square. And then I, I realized at that point that that is where they uh, came up with the, the whole measuring system, the musical scale. It's all right in this eight by eight square. And from those numbers and coordinates, I was able to actually very simply uh, determine the lengths of the base lengths of the pyramids and the placement. And that uh, kind of fell in, uh, you know. Yeah, you lay it out very clearly in the book because and, and I think what the listeners should know, too, is that this is not some arbitrary set of numbers that the, the numbers that you're using are uh, – Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe Plato was the one that supposedly put the numbers to the tetractus, these particular group of numbers. And what you've done is take the the angles, uh, or excuse me, the slopes of the tetractus and put them onto the, essentially the chessboard, which is an eight by eight grid. Correct. Correct. Yes. So you got it. So and the things that and you you lay this out this this whole section of the book I had I just <laughs> I had to stop and 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 get my notebook out and it was just there's just so many amazing correlations that we that you that you've drawn here um let's first off let's talk about can we talk about the 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 the, the music scale that you get going diagonal from from this so you you start out with the numbers of the tetractus you lay them across the board here and then you can actually get the music scale which gives us numbers like important numbers like 864 can you talk about this a little bit yeah sure if if you put the numbers the doubling system down the side the tripling across the top on our eight by eight square and if we draw a diagonal from corner to corner um that that bottom number as we're double going down the eight by eight square we would end up with 256 at the bottom left corner of our square and if we drew an angle diagonally we would be connecting on 45 degrees or uh, connecting intersection coordinates going up the scale and within that is really a, a musical scale of what's called fifth intervals um, like the fifth the fifth tone in a major scale Going up the major scale, you would each step up the angle. You would you would have a fifth interval. So I realized there was a music scale right there, and you know the more I get working with it, and then dividing that uh, each one of those intervals, then again into seven intervals, is where I discovered the actual uh, root of the measuring system. Mm -hmm. And that that would be. Um, between the notes of 288 and 432 on on the scale and and you discuss how the 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 mean or the balance between that would be is 144 right correct exactly yes yes, yes. yeah and of That's course 144 we could we could talk about that for the next two hours yes we could there's yeah. so much uh, it was very hard actually this was a very difficult book to write and try to put in everything i mean there that is uh, not even everything I've got. There's so much more. I just figured that, you know, um, you know, we could uh, go on forever there with these numbers. But yeah, it's really an amazing, amazing thing that people really need to, to look at. And 
Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because we're you're using you're you're using these sort of fundamentals that we find within you know Egypt Egyptian mathematics, Greek mathematics, core numbers that we find in sacred geometrical canon, and the one that you have pointed out here that just floored me, man, was just. Um, so you have on the top section, you have the 139, 27, 81, etc. Anybody that knows the Tetractus can find this or, you know, purchase your book and check this out. And then the one side, you have 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32. So you have the doubling pattern and the tripling pattern that's inherent in the in the Tetractus, as you were saying. And first off, the, the, the doubling and tripling is the numbers 2 and 3. And this is, this this gets right to the heart of ad quadratum and ad triangulum which is yeah. the you know and so here you and of course what did you do you drew a diagonal right through this square to find this which is exactly what you do in ad quadratum so that alone right there is pretty pretty astounding the one thing that just floored me was that this is on page uh, 20 of your book here is that when you actually create the 345 pythagorean triangle using this grid that you set up it hits 864 and 864 is of course a number that we can attribute to the sun Sun has eight hundred sixty-four thousand miles, eighty-six thousand four hundred seconds in a day. But the the way that you get this is the numbers thirty-two and twenty-seven. And in English gematria, uh, Jesus equals twenty-seven, Christ equals thirty-two. So right on that square, and then English um, English alphabet, English equals thirty-two, and alphabet equals twenty-seven. So we find these two very important numbers within our English alphabet in Jesus Christ pointing to 864 and you have this laid out just beautifully right in in your book and i just found that just remarkable so yeah there's there's things that just absolutely have floored me and i gotta tell you this has been very humbling for me um I, i'm just a woodworker with an interest in this stuff and when i when i found this it was you know it just floored me too i gotta tell you and it's still blows me away i've uncovered a treasure here you know i mean there's there's people that do know about this not necessarily in the public but um you know it is absolutely stunning and uh you know i don't know what else to say it's uh been a humbling experience um you know i i want to stay on course here but i i i I want to ask you a question, you know, as a musician yourself, like, and as, as, you know, I'm a musician as well. Like, how has that affected your, you know, your investigative process? Well, really helped a lot. Uh, Just understanding music and music theorem, of course, that uh, within that, that grid right there, that is uh, the Hertz scale. Mm Mm-hmm. That's exactly what that is. It's the electromagnetic scale. If you could keep going with that, you would go right up into the, uh, you know, uh, light and uh, et cetera. You you, you can see it when you got it laid out there. You see where the, the 432 doubled is the speed of light. And if you were to double or, or not double uh, square, this. 432 you get 186 624 mm-hmm. which is very closely approximates the speed of light and uh the interesting thing to that is at one hertz at our one on the corner of of our eight by eight square that would be a c note at one hertz and the wavelength 
for C note one hertz is 186,636 miles, I think. So there's the relationship of the wavelength to the speed of light. It's all right there. It's yeah. That's this is something that I that I always find so interesting is that you know we can see this number four four thirty two. That's that's really important. Um, we see. Right now, we're, we're tuned to A440. This is something that a lot of people bring up, and you bring it up in the book, that we should really be tuned to 432 because the the hertz using this scale harmonizes with the rest of the numbers that you have laid forth here, right? Correct, correct. I totally agree with that, too. I, I do not believe that uh, we should be tuning to the 440 uh, hertz. I think we should be tuned to 432. That's more in a natural uh yeah, the, the natural frequency receptive to humans and uh, I mean all other measure as well as you can see clearly uh, you know that's where all the measure comes from directly related to 432 when you know and we look at 432 this is going back to you know when we look at 432 squared 432 times 432 is what is 186,624 or something like that Correct. and the uh, and the but the speed of the speed of light has been measured at 186,000 roughly you know 324 or whatever it is mm-hmm. so we have this the, the number of speed of the, the speed of light in you know in in miles per second directly just found by simply squaring a single number that we find peppered all throughout sacred geometrical canon what th- this is something that i always want to get to like why do you think that there's such a, a disconnect with modern mathmat you know mathematicians or egyptologists or whatever when when we look at something like that and, and blow it off because it's there isn't an exactitude there you know we're talking about rough numbers if, if you know what i'm asking well what i found uh and this will take us right back to to the musician part are you aware of the the pythagorean comma um yeah, it's after what is it, twelve scales or something like that. You have to kind of tune down a little bit. Is that it? Right. Well, what it is, it is um, if you take, uh, let's see, it's seven octaves, and if you go up seven octaves, or you go up twelve fifth intervals, yes. those two notes are very close to this to the same note. But it's just the fifth intervals are just a little bit sharp when we listen to that those two notes, they would sound out of tune. They would not uh, quite be right. So in order to make that sound right, we would have to adjust that um, that fifth interval, which the, the value of that fifth interval multiplying up our little scale there is multiplying by 1.5. That's a perfect fifth interval. But in the Pythagorean comma, you would have to adjust that down to about 1.498 something. I forget exactly off the top of my head. But then those two notes would sound in tune. Okay. Well, the same thing is going on with the speed of light. Okay. In our little chart there, we can come up with 186,624 as as a very close approximate number for the speed of light. But what's really incredible that I discovered here was that using the fraction of 441 over 440, with that fraction, we can get to the precise speed of light. Now, the interesting thing about the 440 and the 441, those are uh, 
in cubit lengths, the, the length of the base length of the Great Pyramid. It's 440 root or royal cubits in length, and it is also 441 root cubits in length. Same base length, just two units of measure. So right in the base length of uh, the 440 royal cubits or 441 root cubits is the key to adjusting the speed of light to its proper speed measured today. And actually that speed um, comes a little closer um, to what we witness actually in the atmosphere of Earth. It's closer than what the scientists put as the speed of light in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. It's 27 miles an hour closer to the speed that we actually perceive it in the Earth's atmosphere. So, so the 441 and the 440 actually correct that speed that is on our chart there to the correct speed. Just like the tuning of the uh, Pythagorean comma adjusts the sound slightly. Do you, do you feel that the Egyptians, by leaving this, you know, th these monuments, this entire complex, do, I mean, do you feel like that they were basically kind of encapsulating all of the knowledge that they had at the, at whatever point in history it was for future generations that to, to, for literally for, so we could go measure this thing and therefore come up with all of these, these, the, you know, these, you know, the, the mathematics and the, the geometry and things like that. I, it seems like to me that what they were doing was um, marking the, 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 so at some point in time, as you were saying that this was, the, the the grandest and the, the most knowledgeable that human beings could ever get to, if if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, so I think that's right, I, and that's exactly what they did. They were encoding all this knowledge. I, I would assume that every bit of knowledge that they had at the time, and put that there for us, and and for good reason. Um, you know, we can see in these cycles of catastrophe that things can change in a hurry. And, you know, if you want to preserve the human race, uh, you know, you want to try to build on this knowledge and keep it and preserve it, uh, just like they would do a seed vault. You know, they're doing um, a vault of knowledge of the measure and, and science. There's this, that little chart there is an amazing tool and a key to science. Um, Nikola Tesla knew knew quite well what that was all about. And when he says, uh, he has a quote somewhere about the threes, sixes, and nines being the key to understanding the universe, he's exactly right. And if you do a little bit of summing on that chart there, uh, you'll have a pretty big surprise when you talk about threes, sixes, and nines. Yeah, it, it, for sure. You know, you're, you're bringing up a really great point because when, as I'm, you know, going through your book, I, you know, I'm reading all this stuff, I'm taking notes and whatnot, and I realize that I'm not doing any sort of advanced math whatsoever. This is all basic, just arithmetic. Yes. yes. And it really, and um, as you were speaking of Nikola Tesla, I just came across this quote the other day. It says, uh, "Today's scientists have substituted mathematics for experiments, and they wander off through equation after equation, and eventually build a structure which has no relation to reality." 
And really what we see going on with uh, the modern theory in, in physics and math and things like that is there's there's this, um, you know, almost like overthinking of it, like convoluting basic, you know, mathematical principles, making things almost too difficult. And here we have you're using essentially a chessboard. And, of course, how old is the chessboard? Yeah. You know, prehistory. We see it all over Freemasonic halls and things like that. And yet the things that you can extract from it are... I mean, as as we're talking here, pretty pretty damn remarkable. Yeah. Uh, so it to me, what all of this points to is that there is there's the um to the the way to this advanced knowledge is actually through simplicity. It's not through complexity. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely agree with that. that. And that's a great quote from Nikola Tesla because that is exactly the case. We are just being inundated with a lot of nonsense. And if we could just cut to the chase, and uh, this is stuff, you could be learning this stuff in uh, middle school easily. Yes. Yeah, for sure. What, so this this is a question. I think I asked Laird this as well, but, um, you know, where? how do you think that they obtained this information? Well, that's a good question, and uh, it's one I'm certainly open to. Uh, you know, I don't like to really box myself in on anything um mm. but but the one uh example i've heard of in egypt that says anything about the pyramids is a, is i think it's in edfu there is uh an inscription that says uh not quoting this precisely here but it says something like the plans for the temple came down from the heavens in the days of Imhotep. So, you know, I don't know whether they, you know, we can literally, you know, they literally came down from the sky or these were uh, just advanced civilizations that, um, you know, were affected from these catastrophic events. You know, the 10,500 B.C. event, the end of the Ice Age, and and uh, I guess there's several others there as well. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it's a good question, and I think you know, if the, the more that this is understood, this template here, I think that uh, there's going to be so many pieces of the puzzle coming together. Because believe me, other researchers need to look at this. They they are. Uh, going off and finding very good pieces of the puzzle and they could add to this and this would assist them in understanding their research too. And I think those answers are there. I think that, uh, you know, there is, uh, you know, some more to be discovered at Giza. I'm quite certain of that just uh, on some of the geometric uh, points that I found within the template that I don't really go too much into in the, in the book. Um, this next book has got quite a bit more uh, regarding uh, some of the possibilities for the underground, uh, if you want to call it the Hall of Records or whatever you want to call it. But um, I'm sure along with the uh, what we can see above ground that there are more things underground. And I believe that we'll be able to answer this precisely, uh, you know, through discovered information. And I think that this work that I've put, put forth here is, you know, is key to understanding that. 
one one thing I wanted to ask you is that you you were uh, you attended the um, or you you gave a, a speech at the the uh, the conference of procession and ancient knowledge right the CPAC conference uh, Walter Cruttenden yes. right yes one of the things that he puts forward is um, that procession is actually clocked at roughly what what twenty four thousand years or something like that where the more often than not I I have found within my own investigation of the math itself the 25,920 and divisors of that number and that seems to be what you're pointing to as well where what's what's your take on the discrepancy of the 24,000 years roughly 26,000 years well you know I know uh Walter does have the 24,000 year um idea there and he comes he comes he gets that from um Oh, there's a, I can't remember, um, there's a, a, a Hindu philosopher from the late 1800s. Um, oh, uh, Suri Yukatswar. You got it. That's it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, right. And I think that's where he gets that from. And I'm not really uh, sure about that with Walter. Um, matter of fact, I'd like to, to talk a little bit about procession here because, uh, what I've discovered in this next step, actually, they recorded at Giza, they recorded the processional movement. And it's not, and it's not from a wobbling earth. Sure. Um, that's, that's the, the standard academia uh, story there that the earth is wobbling. And I, I really don't see any evidence for that at all. They can't. Uh, measure that wobble within uh, our own solar system. Um, they can't measure that wobble against the the sun or other planets. Uh, so I think that they need to just throw that out the window because that's just not the, the case. But what I have found uh, in this next book that I'll be publishing, and I, I put forth precisely what I found there and it's really coming from a spiral movement away from the sword in Orion's belt that uh, our solar system was birthed from that point in in uh, it'd be M42 actually in the great Orion Nebula and they also uh, in what they left at Giza show that the Pleiades and the star Sirius both came from that same place as well. And that the three, our solar system, the Pleiades and Sirius are moving in a spiral motion away from the sword in Orion's nebula. And that spiral motion is what we're seeing as procession as this wobble it's not a wobble it's the it's the um it's our view of this spiral movement of our solar system moving away from this uh point in uh orion's sword the great orion nebula and it's very precise too it's it's this i know this sounds like uh you know what's this guy talking about but um i've got very precise uh, uh, information here that it's really hard to, to argue with that that's in, that's in fact what the Egyptians were pointing to. And it, and it 
it reconciles all these calendars perfectly with alignments and and the major alignments coming from the uh, you know Orion. Now, also too, just just to give you a quick uh, um, the Orion correlation theory of Robert Bouval is that is the um, the one part of it. The other part of it is the Sphinx. Now, the Sphinx is Leo, uh, as a representative of Leo, the constellation, is showing the movement of the Zodiac, uh, the, the Zodiac constellations using the lion. That, that shows us the view of our procession, mm-hmm. which we see this circular movement. But then what, what the three belt stars or the three pyramids indexed on the belt stars of Orion then show is the cause of that view. And that cause of the view is from this spiral that emanates from that. And we can e- literally see that spiral in Barnard's loop. Sure. And the, the Dogon talk about Barnard's loop. Exactly. Well, right? Exactly. Yeah. This all fits into the, the Dogon discussion and all of it. I mean, it, it's really, it really amazes me and it, it, it excites me that, that I've, you know, come across this and, and want to share it. You know, I, I kind of have felt like a, a boy who cried wolf uh, with this whole thing. You know, everybody, there's, there's been, you know, thousands of theories put forth with the, the Giza plateau and, uh, you know, I, I'm standing there, just a little woodworking guy saying, oh, you know, look what I found here. Look what I found. And nobody seems to be listening, you know. Yeah. And uh, but th- this next part uh, will uh, we're going to be reconciling the calendars precisely with alignments that are uh, anyone. It's it's as simple as the rest of the this first book. All you need to do is is sit in front of the Sphinx and watch the sky, and the key the key of that is is the end date, or I shouldn't say the end, the end beginning date of the, the uh, December twenty first, twenty twelve, at at twelve hours twenty minutes, twenty one minutes and twelve seconds. So it it was a binary code that they used for the Gregorian calendar for the end. Of ones and twos, hmm. That's right down, right down to the minutes and seconds. And if you go on like a Stellarium or whatever star program you happen to have, and just uh, look at the coordinates, I got that. Uh, I think I got that in the book, or just just go into coordinates on Google Earth or whatever. Go right between the, the paws of the Sphinx, and look at the sky at uh, December 21st, 2012, at 12 hours, 21 minutes, and 12 seconds, and see what you see. With with all of these cultures seeming to point to time, right? I mean, basically, as you're saying, that the, the whole Giza Plateau in one way is a repository of knowledge. It's a marker of time. There's countless cultures that have clocked great spans of time, whether that's the Greeks or the Hindus. What What is your take on why, why is this so important besides the fact of, you know, um, cycles of catastrophe or birth and rebirth? Because most people in their lives are not going to experience those things. Like what? What is so important about you know the the, the mapping in, of time? Well, again, I, I think it's uh, 
really directly related to that. If we want, you know, this this civilization or humanity to survive, we need to understand these cycles. And yes, they are much longer than uh, human lifetime, but um, you know, therefore, even more important that we put this down, and and then not only put it down in uh, in form of the architectural structures at Giza, but also within a verbal tradition that's implanted and encoded within stories um, that can get passed down, you know, verbally as well. And we can see that that, that's where Laird really helped me out a lot on the book, and he added his uh, linguistics to it, and um, it's it's all there. It's, It's not just the architectural structures, it is the verbal tradition as well and you know if we were to uh, not understand this and um, you know this shit hit the fan and you would lose all that knowledge you would be back to square one and uh, take a long long time to really come back from that where at least if the knowledge is there and there are initiates or priests or or whatever that that have that knowledge and can pass it down. It's it's very important for for humanity. You know, it's funny that you bring up the phrase "back to square one" because when you think about it, if a, a square has a side of one, that means the the diagonal is a square root of two, and that gets you right back <laughs> to what you're talking about. Which I think is just it's kind of funny. So, all right. Um, when we when we look at um. I want to get your take on this because this is something that I've been really like deeply considering about that sort of time that's you know, when we look out in the universe, when we look at the earth, we look at the, the, the sun, everything is moving and growing and pulsating and spinning. And, the, you know, the but there seems to be a grand tempo. It's but the, but the tempo seems to be fixed, if you will. Like the when when the ancient people were mapping these great spans of time, whether that great span of time is the cycle of the Earth and the 365 days or a 25,920 year period, it seems like these cycles are fixed in time. That they're that they're, they're, they're grand wheels within a great clock, and that they're never going to change. They're never going to move. That's what it seems like to me. And if we have these ancient structures with Robert Schock talking about the, the Sphinx being possibly 10,000, 20,000 years old. It seems like the the mapping this would it, it, that's almost what they're indicating is that yes when we map these cycles of time we're we're mapping cycles of time that are going to be consistent for a very long time at least if not infinitely I mean what do do you know what I'm trying to get to and 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 what what is your take on that and yeah I, I, I I'm bringing this up because there there's a few things that you put out in your book that were that to me indicate this exact thing yeah it's 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 what I've found. And no doubt, right now I can, I can track uh, precisely back to 3114 BC. I've I've got that. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Even e- I can even get to the 10,500 BC date that Robert Bouval uh, discusses. And it, it's it. I I should say um, it even goes back further than that. I can go back. Uh, 25,920 years from the year zero, which is interesting. I'm still trying to get my head around some of that because that's way too much of a coincidence 
and and then again putting in the year zero in the Gregorian calendar. It's 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 all kind of tied together. But right now, uh, you know, I'm very confident that things have been uh, pretty stable in the sky since 3114 BC because these alignments that I've discovered, uh, I mean, they're so precise you won't believe it. Uh, that 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 couldn't possibly be the case if anything had changed. That's 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 exactly what I mean because um, you know when I've heard the theory that you know we had a three hundred sixty day solar year and that all of a sudden it, it got changed to three hundred sixty five you know day or whatever because something got knocked out of place. But to me, n- none of that makes any sense. And and the one the reason that I'm bringing this up is that th- this was something that I w- I was actually writing about in my own book and then I see it's in your book as well. Is that when we look at um, Kef? What no is it? It's not Kefri. It's uh, Menkare, right? This is one of the one of the great pyramids. Yeah. One of the sides is 343 feet. Yes. And you make it, you, you say in the book, well, seven cubed is 343. And we, yes. could, of course, we could talk about seven cubed or the number seven all day long and the mm-hmm. importance of it in mythology. Seven plus seven plus seven equals 21. So right. this gives you 343 plus 21 being 364. And of course, the 364 day calendar is the calendar that we find in Chichen Itza, the Pyramid of Kukulkan. Mm-hmm. We find it in the deck of cards. How, this is this is this is the question: is like, how is it that that a, that a solar calendar, down to the precision of within a day, is found by the simply playing with the number seven? You know what I mean? If there was a 360 day year, you know, and if things weren't stable, if things weren't fixed, then how could such a occurrence happen? If if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, I've had I've been having discussions with Laird uh, about this. Uh, he wrote a little bit on uh, the calendars and um, the uh, the Velikovsky heresies, um, and this three hundred and sixty day calendar. Well, here's what I've uh, come to find: not necessarily um, in the solar, but it, it would apply to the solar thing as well. Think of this, okay? We have a spiral. At the center of that spiral, where the the two diagonals would cross within your golden rectangle, mm-hmm. there's there's there would be the center. It's actually it would be an imaginary point at the center of that spiral. If you were to index a 360 degree circle on that, so that when you measured the spiral, the spiral would actually go around in 360 degrees, but it would not be following a circular path. Okay? So if, if we were to measure, we could say, oh, we're going to measure around um, this spiral, and we're going to measure around 360 divisions or days, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. But the actual travel, because we're not going in a circle, if we if we were traveling in a spiral motion or helical motion, we would have to adjust because we're moving forward. Okay, this it wouldn't be a stationary spiral; it would be a spiral as we're moving forward. The sun is moving through space at uh, you know a pretty high rate of speed, so therefore. We, we aren't necessarily just making a circle around the sun. We're, we're kind of going around in a, in a forward motion. So when you add the length of the additional uh, 
path around that, uh, if you measured the circumference of each part of that r radius of, of the spiral, you would come to a slightly different uh, measurement. Did you get that PowerPoint I sent to you about the 23 and a half degrees tilt of the Earth and the 25 uh, or 259.2 degrees? Yes. I, yes, I did. Yep. Okay. Go back uh, on your own here and just you could check that out and you'll see exactly what I mean. So what I'm thinking is that when when they talk about the 360 day year. I'm thinking that it's very possible that they're talking about just dividing it in 360 degrees. But the actual measure, when we actually go around that, because we're not going in a circle and we're moving ahead in, in a spiral or helical motion, that, that time that it would take would be a little longer because we're traversing a little longer path, not a perfectly circular one, right? Mm-hmm. So that would could account for the extra few days that would be in a year. Now, I don't know, you know, I'm not an astrophysicist, and I, I don't claim to be, but I did find that to be the case uh, of how they encoded these spirals at Giza. And the wall of the crow and uh, a, a, the Temple of Kentkawis, I guess is how you pronounce it. Those two structures at Giza point that out precisely, that they're, they're pointing to the difference in the length around a spiral and the, and the distance around the circumference of the circle. They're pointing to those two things. So um, I think that's something that we need to look at, at least consider and uh, do some calculations based on, you know, what I found. I think we could answer that question. You know, philosophically, and this, this whole concept makes a lot of sense to me because it's, it's the idea that it's almost like there's sort of like perfect geometry put into movement and then it sort of like throws that perfect geometry a little bit off and that's what we end up with, you know, like, for instance, 360, not being 360 days in a solar year, 365. The ellipse, it seems like the ellipse is just off a perfect circle, right? Right. So it's almost right. it's almost as if the, the a creator or whatever put this stuff as a template, put it into movement, and that's why we don't see a perfect circle in an elliptical. We have an elliptical orbit and not a perfect circular orbit because right. it's almost like that circle is being smushed because it's moving through space. So right. philosophically and conceptually, that makes sense, and it would, would be really in tune with what you're what you're saying about the the uh, the Fibonacci the, the golden rectangle. Yeah, and that's I really would like to uh, you know get some. Uh, people together on this I, I did contact walter cruttenden i'd like to speak with him a little bit more about this uh, he does have the facilities there where we could really map this out um i i've actually too contacted the local university here and uh they have a planetarium i'm hoping to to be able to meet with those folks and go in there and uh, you know let's physically map out what i've got here i think um i think we could uh uh, figure out a few things here. I think precession um, is going to uh, be a very uh, interesting thing here with, with uh, looking at what I found. It, it seems that this mapping of this great span of time is, is key to a lot of these mysteries when it really comes down to it, right? Yes, absolutely. You yeah. bet.
that's the that's the really the big story there. I mean, I think they're look here, here, folks. Here's here's the knowledge you're going to need because uh, when these catastrophes happen, um, you know, you need to need, need to know this. So we we only got a, like a few minutes here, but where you know, since we're pointing to this day, 2012, this 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 grand alignment that we see with the unit with the uh, you know center of our galaxy, what where do you think that we're at in the cycle? I mean, do you subscribe to a blooming of consciousness, a reawakening of spirit, or any of that? Or what's your take on that? You know, I really uh, I've got an open mind to all that. I really. Uh, I really don't know for sure, uh, but you know, I continue to uh, just do the research here and see what happens. I don't know. I mean, there is a there's there's very good uh, possibility that 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 could happen, and I really think that just understanding what is at Giza will change our consciousness. <laughs> I mean, it seems that that's what's what it's doing right now for all yeah. of these independent researchers. I mean, myself included, obviously yourself, you, you know, you, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, as, as you explained earlier. So, I mean, to me, it's like, okay, well, that, it just makes sense that these ancient people put that there to sort of, um, you know, prod people about the mystery of existence and about these grand mysteries so that we would actually rediscover these things. That's, that's right. And and I do believe, yeah, I mean, it, it will, this will change, uh, people's uh, thinking consciousness when they realize the simplicity and beauty of, of, you know, this creation and this magnificent place we're living, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, geez, there's so much, there's so much more I wanted to cover. I wanted to talk about the root cubit and the Royal cubit and, and how you found that. So, but we're probably going to have to make that for another time. So let's, let's do it again, Maury. I, I, really yeah, I would love to. talking to you. And, and I wanted to tell you too, just a quick note, you know, I did check some of your, uh, your alphabet with these uh, names and stuff at Giza, and it's amazing. We could hope we could have a night on that, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, the one that just floored me was, um, you know, the the upper angle of the the missing capstone of the Great Pyramid is roughly seventy six degrees, yeah. and Isis, Osiris, and Horus. If you do the numerology of that, the gematria of that, it equals seventy six. Yeah. So we're just things like that. <laughs> There's so many things I'd like to talk to you about. Yeah, Isn't it no amazing? Doubt. It's like you know that, you know when. As as you gone through this investigation, when you come up with these little connect, you know, connections and and these little sparks, they're just they aliven the spirit, do they not? Oh, absolutely! I, I can't tell you. It's transformed my life, really. Understanding, you know, what I've found, it's just amazing. Yeah. So okay, so you're working up on you're working on your your follow up book. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? What that's going to be called and when when that's due? Yeah. I'm, well, I'm hoping to have it done in a couple of months. I've got. Uh, basically all the graphics done and all the the research done behind it now i just got to assemble it and and kind of write it out uh but it's, it essentially takes it from the sphinx uh w the first book has basically the placement of all 11 pyramids and the sphinx now the sphinx is is basically the witness that the mark the witness mark where you're measuring the heavens and measuring the sky, and the movement, the trajectory of the solar system, and and the you know the celestial bodies. So what I've done there is just from that point at the Sphinx, have gone through and w using the Stellarium software, uh, mapped out in the sky uh, the especially Orion and uh, Leo and Sirius and the Pleiades. Those uh, 
being the major uh, point of focus here. And uh, I'll step through that just like I stepped through the, uh, the other part of the book. Um, and actually, you know, someone with this stellarium can, can do it and look at it just as they're going through the book and see how it's really quite easy. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to reconcile the calendars and show you uh, precisely what the job of the Sphinx was. And that is to mark time. You know, he's the keeper of time, the uh, uh, measure of the ages. Yeah, and the watcher of the heavens. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah, that's that was its chore. So, um, how do people pick up your new book? It's available on Amazon, right? Do you have a, you have yes. a website? Amazon, yes, and I have a website. It's uh, the thegizatemplate.com. Um, you can check that out. Um, and again, it uh, it's a self-published book, so it's basically through Amazon right now. Uh, that that could change at some point, but uh, for now, that's where you can find it. And uh, like I said. Within a couple of months, I should have this uh, next part available and uh, look forward to that. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, Ed, Ed, thanks for coming on, man. This is, it's, been, it's been really great. Um, best of luck to you. And, yeah, let's, let's do this again. When you get the new book out, maybe we can do something for the web to get some visuals for the listeners because that's, that's always helpful with this sort of thing. So. Absolutely. I really enjoyed our talk and love to do it again, Marty. All right. Thanks, man. Uh, best to you. Thanks. Right. You too. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Our outro song is called Holding Smoke and is provided by Eugene, Oregon's very own Michael Conley. The last time I saw this guy play live, my friend Ryan and I had one too many beers and ended up having one too many more because this guy was just killing it. He was just captivating the room. I've been listening to this song at work every day since I heard it and downloaded it. And this track is the title track to Michael's latest record, which can be purchased at iTunes, as well as on his site, michaelconley.info, and Conley is spelled C-O-N-L-E-Y. Coming up in the next few episodes of the Marty Leeds Math Magical Radio Hour will be host of the Crow House, Max Egan, producer and writer of the Pyramid Code, Dr. Carmen Bolter, and I am working at getting some of the contributors for the up-and-coming Modern Knowledge Tour. Make sure to stay tuned and always remember, an opinion without pie is just an onion. Thanks.
Well, I cried, I felt like he was still inside. Oh, what's the point of holding on? If it all just slips away, away, like holding smoke in your lungs, all the remnants of a day. Just keeps to herself. The doctors are worried about her health. She's getting closer with every cigarette. I know she just wants to lay with him. My brothers, they don't seem to care. Well, dance, drive a truck, and pause. Delaware, they both got lives of their own, and they doubt they'll even make it home. And what's the point of holding on if it all just slips away, away, like holding smoke? Listening to the Marty Leeds Mathematical Radio Hour. 
More information about the work of Marty Leeds can be found at martyleeds33.com. You can download his full-length studio record, Opus Medico Musica, from iTunes or Amazon.com. And be sure and check out his books, Pi and the English Alphabet, Volume 1 and 2, and The Peacock's Tales, available at martyleeds33.com and Amazon. For hours of free video, check out his YouTube channel at martyleeds33. More information about SyncBook Press, SyncBook Radio, or SyncBook Events can be found at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much, and though some people think it's a piece of cake, we all know it's easy as pie. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.